Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined today by my partner, George Backrack. As you know, the program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and it's designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. We appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. We also ask that you like and or share our uh, Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you miss uh, a presentation, you can listen to a recording at three different locations, first on our website at wcslaw.com, then also as a podcast at podbean.com under Surety Today, and on our micro site at suretytoday.net. You can also read a uh, written transcript of the presentation on the WCS website, the Surety Today microsite. If you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. And if you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt by email at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. We've muted the line during the presentation to avoid the background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Now, before we begin, I would like to take this opportunity to publicly congratulate George on receiving the Chairman's Award from the National Bond Claims Association for his contributions to the surety and fidelity industry. The award was presented at the association's uh, annual meeting last month, and uh, they don't just give that out to any old surety lawyer, and so I say, well done and well deserved, sir. Today, we are starting our two-part series on bankruptcy preferences. And our presentation today will address the surety's direct exposure for preferential transfers. And I think I turn it over to George. Good afternoon. Uh, a surety facing the debtors or the trustee's complaint to avoid a preferential transfer in the debtor's bankruptcy case is the very definition of going backwards. You thought you were in one place and now you are not. You thought you had the money in hand and the exposure was gone. Now the debtor or the trustee wants the money back and may, and that may rekindle the surety's exposure to loss. There are essentially two situations when the surety may be going backwards. First, when the surety receives a direct transfer of the principal's property, whether it's collateral or some other transfer, payment, or reimbursement, but then the principal files a bankruptcy case. The second case is when the surety receives the benefit of an indirect transfer of the principal's property to a third party. For example, the principal pays someone other than the surety, such as its subcontractors and suppliers, thereby apparently relieving the surety of its payment obligations under the payment bond, but then the principal files a bankruptcy case. There are many nuances to these situations, which are some of the most complex and knotty factual and legal problems for surety to solve. Uh, we can't cover the issues in only one 30-minute presentation. As a result, as Mike said, there will be two presentations. Today's presentation concerning direct preferential transfers to a surety and the possible outcomes, and on December 10, a presentation concerning the more difficult issues that arise when a surety receives an indirect preferential transfer due, the, due to the principal's payment to some third party. Mike? Okay, so I'm going to just talk a couple seconds here, a couple minutes here, rather, about uh, sort of preferences in general. So under the bankruptcy preference powers, a trustee or debtor in possession is able to reach back in time prior to the bankruptcy filing 
and void or undo or set aside certain transfers of the debtor's assets. The Bankruptcy Code at 11 U.S.C. Section 547 establishes the power of a bankruptcy trustee or debtor in possession to assert a preference action with respect to certain transfers that occur within a specified time period prior to the filing of bankruptcy. In general, a preference exists when a person or entity makes payment or other transfers to certain creditors and not to others just prior to the bankruptcy filing. Such favoritism or preferential treatment in close proximity to the filing of bankruptcy is what is prohibited by the code. The bankruptcy preference powers have two primary purposes. First, to promote the bankruptcy policy of equality of distribution among creditors by ensuring that all creditors of the same class will receive the same pro rata distribution share of the debtor's estate. And second, to reduce the creditor's incentive to rush to dismember the financially unstable debtor by providing for the recapture of last-minute payments to such creditors. The preference powers are designed to help creditors by allowing the avoidance of transfers that favor certain preferred creditors and enables the bankruptcy estate to recover those assets for equitable distribution to all the creditors. Thus, the preference powers put the creditor on a relatively level playing field with respect to use of a debtor's assets that may have been available prior to the bankruptcy and during the, quote, debtor's slide into bankruptcy, unquote. Now, I'm going to talk about the essential elements of a preference. I'm going to read to you Section 547B of the Bankruptcy Code, and then I'm going to explain what I think that means. Uh, Section 547B provides that the elements of a preferential transfer and states that the trustee may avoid any transfer of an interest of the debtor in property to or for the benefit of a creditor for or on account of an antecedent debt owed by the debtor before such transfer is made, made while the debtor was insolvent, made on or within 90 days before the date of the filing of the petition, or if it's an insider, within one year of the filing of the petition, and enable such creditor to receive more than such creditor would receive if the case were liquidation under Chapter 7, the transfer had not been made, and such creditor received payment of such debt to the extent provided by the Bankruptcy Code, which is a pro rata distribution. All those elements are required, but to decipher the meaning of 547B, one has to deconstruct the elements and look at a number of defined terms in the bankruptcy uh, code. Step one, what does it mean to avoid any transfer of an interest of the debtor and property? First, as Michael discussed, a preference is voidable, not automatically void. Second, the transfer definition is very broad and includes both a debtor's voluntary or involuntary disposal of or parting with its property. And third, the transfer must involve an interest of the debtor in property, which is defined broadly under Section 541 of the Bankruptcy Code as all legal or equitable interests of the debtor in property as of the commencement of the bankruptcy case. Step two is a determination that the transfer of the property was made to a creditor for or, for or on account of an antecedent debt owed by the debtor to the creditor before the transfer was made. Obviously, the surety is a creditor of the debtor under the pre-petition indemnity agreement, 
and as a result of the execution of the pre-petition bonds for the debtor. And the debtor owes an antecedent debt to the surety for the surety's actual or potential claim under the indemnity agreement and the bonds, whether that pre-petition debtor liability is contingent, liquidated, fixed, disputed, undisputed, or otherwise at the time of the debtor's filing of the bankruptcy estate. Step number three requires that the transfer of the property must occur while the debtor wasn't solvent. Section 547F of the Bankruptcy Code provides that the debtor is presumed to be insolvent when it files its bankruptcy case, and this may be a hard presumption for a surety to rebut and overcome. Section Step 4 relates to the timing of the transfer of the property. There are two periods of time that a transfer of property may be avoidable, on or within 90 days before the filing of the bankruptcy case, which is the situation we address as the most frequent timing situation, and for insider situations between 90 days and a year before the filing of the bankruptcy case. There's a long definition of the bankruptcy code of who are the debtor's individual, corporate, or other insiders that must be reviewed, but it's very doubtful that a surety can be an insider of a debtor, even though some trustees have alleged that this can happen. Step number five is the last element and requires that the creditor receive more than it would have received if the bankruptcy case is a liquidation under Chapter 7, and the amount the creditor receives is greater than the distribution is or will be made to other creditors in a like situation. For example, if the surety was an unsecured creditor and then obtained collateral within 90 days of the filing of the bankruptcy case that would provide a 25% repayment of the surety's debt, and yet other unsecured creditors would receive a distribution of only 5% of their debt in a Chapter 7 liquidation, then this element of a preferential transfer would be met. This example goes to the heart of Mike's earlier discussion of equality of distribution among like creditors. Mike? Okay, so I'm going to talk uh, a few minutes here about um, first the procedural, sort of procedural aspects of a, of a preference action. First, it should be noted that um, in establishing the elements of a preference action, the debtor's or creditor's intent or motive is not material. It is the effect of the transaction rather than the debtor's or the creditor's intent that is controlling. The Tennessee Bankruptcy Court observed, the uh, quote, the preference statute is blind to intent or default. Enactment of the Bankruptcy Code removed any scienter requirement for preference recovery, and knowledge or intent of the creditor is irrelevant in determining whether an avoidable transfer has occurred, unquote. So let's look at the statute of limitations. The Bankruptcy Code at Section 546A provides that a preference action must be commenced within two years after the entry of the order for relief or one year after the appointment or election of the first trustee in a Chapter 7 or Chapter 11 bankruptcy case if that appointment occurs within that two-year period after the entry for the order of relief. Now, the order, the uh, definition of the order for relief in this context means the date that the bankruptcy petition in, in a voluntary bankruptcy case was filed. The time of appointment of a trustee varies depending on the chapter. So in Chapter 7 bankruptcies, a trustee is appointed when the permanent trustee is elected at the meeting of creditors or automatically at the meeting if no election is held. Under Chapter 11, a trustee is appointed when the court signs the order approving the appointment of the trustee. 
While a trustee or debtor in possession must file a preference action within the limitations period to obtain affirmative relief, preference powers may also be used defensively outside of the limitations period to contest the validity of a lien or a claim against the bankruptcy estate. So let's look at the nature of a preference action. So under rule, under bankruptcy rule 7001, the trustee or debtor in possession must file an adversary proceeding in the bankruptcy to initiate a preference action. This means that an adversary complaint must be filed and a summons must be issued and then served. A preference action may not be initiated as a mere motion. Uh, preferential transfers, as George mentioned, are voidable. They are not automatically void and therefore the trustee or debtor in possession must affirmatively file an avoidance action. And the burden of proof for purposes of preference action, the trustee has the burden of proving the avoidability of a transfer by establishing each and every element of a preference by a preponderance of the evidence. The creditor against whom recovery or avoidance is sought then has the burden of proving any applicable defense by a preponderance of the evidence. And that's set forth in uh, Section 547G. So now let's spend some time looking at, uh, at the surety's defenses to a preference action. First, the first grounds for defense can be found oftentimes in the elements themselves. So a surety's potential defense to a preference action, um, as noted earlier, in order to prevail, a trustee or debtor in possession must establish each and every element of the voidable preference under the code. While any of the elements could potentially be challenged as a defense, one element bears mentioning in the surety context, i.e. the requirement that the transfer be of property of the debtor. As George noted, an essential element of proof for a preference action includes establishing that the debtor had an interest in the property transferred under Section 541 of the Bankruptcy Code. Thus, an initial defense can be raised challenging whether property of the estate was involved in the transfer. For example, if a payment was made by the debtor within 90 days of the bankruptcy and all the other elements were present, if the funds that were paid were held in trust by the debtor, a preference action could not be maintained. As we have discussed in a prior Surety Today presentation, trust funds are common in the construction industry, and they arise by statute or contract or even in the general agreement of indemnity. When a trust exists, the debtor holds the trust funds as a mere trustee, and such interest is not property of the bankruptcy estate under Section 541 of the Code. In a Delaware bankruptcy case, the Chapter 11 debtor, in its capacity as a prime contractor on construction projects, held funds in trust for the benefit of unpaid subs and suppliers pursuant to the provisions of the New York lien law. Under the lien law, the funds did not constitute an interest of the debtor in property. Accordingly, the debtor's prepetition transfers to such, of such funds to, to its subs and suppliers were not avoidable preferences. So aside from looking at the elements as, as giving rise to defenses, there are statutory defenses that are provided under Section 547C of the Code. So even when the trustee satisfies all the elements of a preference action, the transfer may not be avoided as a preference if the creditor can prove that it is entitled to rely on one of the exceptions listed in Section 547C. As noted earlier, the creditor has the burden of establishing the elements of such, of, of such exceptions or defenses. 547C lists seven exceptions that may be used as defenses. However, the exceptions that are the most common and valuable to, to a surety are the following. We're going we're to look at three. 
First is uh, 547C1, the contemporaneous exchange of new value. So 547C1 provides the so-called new value defense and states that a trustee may not avoid a transfer to the extent the transfer was intended by the debtor and creditor to be a contemporaneous exchange for new value given to the debtor, and there was, in fact, a contemporaneous exchange. A good example of this defense would be where the debtor pays COD in exchange for a shipment of materials for a project. In that scenario, you essentially have a simultaneous exchange of goods for payment. The new value defense is grounded in the principle that the transfer of new value to the debtor will offset the payments and the debtor's estate will not be depleted to the detriment of other creditors. Thus, for this defense to apply, the value given for the transfer must actually enhance the worth of the debtor's estate so as to offset the reduction in the estate caused by the transfer or the payment. The purpose of this defense is to encourage creditors to continue to deal with troubled entities without fear of having to disgorge payments that were received in exchange for value given. In order to establish the defense, it must first be established that new value was provided. Now, new value is defined in the bankruptcy code as follows, quote, money or money's worth in goods, services, or new credit or released by a transferee of property previously transferred to such transferee in a transaction that is neither void nor voidable by the debtor or the trustee under any applicable law, including proceeds of such property, but does not include an obligation substituted for an existing obligation, unquote. That's Section 547A2. New value is measured at the time of the transfer. A promise to provide future goods and services in exchange for payment cannot constitute new value at the time of the transfer. The Tenth Circuit noted that the fact that a creditor may have promised to continue to do business with the debtor if the debtor paid its bills is not new credit or new value to the estate. Furthermore, forbearance from exercising pre-existing rights does not constitute new value under the code. In determining new value, a court must measure the value given to the debtor in determining the extent to which the trustee may avoid uh, contemporaneous exchange. Thus, if the debtor received 30000 in materials but paid 50000 30 of which was for the goods and another twenty for prior shipments, there would still be a 20000 preference because the extent of the new value to the estate was only 30, not the entire 50. The Ninth Circuit has held that the release of a, of a fully secured lien in exchange for payment from the debtor would constitute new value. If new value can be established, then in order to prove the defense, the exchange of that new value must in fact be substantially contemporaneous. Some courts have adopted a bright line 10-day rule for determining if the exchange was contemporaneous. Under this rule, if the transaction was not completed within 10 days, it, it will not be held to be contemporaneous. Other courts employ a case-by-case -case approach and look to the facts and circumstances to determine if the exchange was contemporaneous. Things such as length of delay, reason for the delay, complexity of the transaction, intent of the parties, risk of fraud, etc., are, are what would be considered by the court. Under this approach, a two- to three-week delay in exchange has been held to be contemporaneous. Finally, to establish the new value defense, the parties must, must have intended the transaction to be contemporaneous. Thus, even if on its face it appeared to be contemporaneous, if the parties did not intend for that exchange of new value to be so, the defense will fail. Next defense is the transfer in the ordinary course. Section 547C2 provides that the trustee may not avoid a transaction 
uh, as preferential if the transfer was made in payment of a debt incurred by the debtor in the ordinary course of business or financial affairs of the debtor and the transferee, and such transfer was made in the ordinary course of the business or financial affairs of the debtor and transferee, or was made according to ordinary business terms. The ordinary course defense is intended to protect recurring customary credit transactions that are made and paid in the ordinary course of business. It's designed to induce creditors to continue to deal with a distressed entity. To establish the ordinary course defense, the creditor must first prove that the underlying debt on which payment was made was incurred by the debtor in the ordinary course of business or financial affairs of both the debtor and the creditor. This analysis requires the court to examine the normality of incurring that debt at issue in each party's business operations in general. If the transaction from which the debt arose was not ordinary for both parties, then the defense will fail. The question will be, was the debt incurred in a typical arm's-length commercial transaction that occurred in the marketplace or as part of its routine operations? Once it is established that the debt was incurred in the ordinary course, then it must be proven that either the transfer, one, was made in the ordinary course of business for both parties, or two, it was made according to ordinary business terms. In analyzing this aspect of the defense, the court will engage in a subjective factual analysis. The controlling issue is whether transactions both before and during the 90-day period were consistent. Even if the payments were irregular, they may still be considered ordinary if they were consistent with the course of dealing between the particular parties. Thus, it becomes important to establish a baseline of dealing between the parties during the time period when the debtor's day-to-day operations were ordinary, preferably before the debtor became financially distressed. And then the court will uh, examine the payment history before and during that 90-day period to see if the payments were, in fact, in the ordinary course. Now, with respect to the alternative prong of the defense, it may be proven that the transfer was made in the ordinary course of business if, if you can show the objective standard of what was ordinary in, the, in that particular business. So finally, Section 547C4 uh, is the defense for transfer of subsequent advances. Section 547 provides that uh, a transfer may not be avoided as a preference if the transfer was made to or for the benefit of a creditor uh, to the extent that after such transfer the creditor gave new value to or for the benefit of the debtor that is not secured by an otherwise unavoidable security interest and on account of which the new value of the debtor did not make an otherwise avoidable tra- unavoidable transfer to or for the benefit of such creditor. That's a lot. Thus, from the code, the elements of this defense are, one, a creditor extends new value, two, the new value provided is unsecured, and three, the new value is not repaid to the debtor after the preferential transfer. So the subsequent new value exception was devised as a solution for the unsecured creditor with a running account who would otherwise find the last 90 days of its payments avoided by the trustee in bankruptcy. The defense is based on two policy considerations. First, the creditor uh, who implicitly relies on prior payments and extending additional credit would otherwise increase its bankruptcy loss. And secondly, such creditors should be encouraged to continue their credit arrangement with financially distressed debtors, potentially helping them to avoid um, bankruptcy. So, George? What we'd like to do now is to discuss several situations where the surety receives a direct preference, whether it's a voluntary or involuntary transfer from the debtor. The surety may receive a direct preference in several ways. The surety may receive payment of a bond premium. 
Yes, the surety may receive a preferential transfer when the principal pays the bond premium unless one of the defenses to the preferences is available. The bond premium may be paid at any number of times. Some sureties require the premium to be paid prior to or contemporaneously with the execution and delivery of the bond. Some sureties require payment within a specified period of time, such as 45 days after the execution and delivery of the bond. Some sureties are willing to wait until after the obligee pays the principal the bond premium in the principal's first payment application, and some sureties may allow even greater flexibility for bond premium payments. The two most obvious preference defenses in this situation are a contemporaneous exchange for new value. The value is the surety's execution of the bond in return for the payment of the premium. But as Mike has described previously, a contemporaneous exchange means contemporaneous. And most of the payment options that I have described above and previously, other than the first one, are not necessarily contemporaneous. The second one is a is a payment in the ordinary course of business. However, the flexibility of some sureties for when the premium payment is made and whether the payment meets the ordinary course of business or ordinary business term standards may make this def defense difficult for a surety to maintain or prove. This defense may be available for more of the payment options that I described previously if they are truly ordinary payments. In summary, a surety's execution and delivery of a bond prior to receiving a payment for the bond premium may result in a claim for a preferential transfer of the bond premium. I have actually faced this situation before, so I know it can occur. The surety may also receive a voluntary transfer of the principal's real or personal property. A surety may receive collateral at the inception of the surety bond program for the debtor and prior to or contemporaneously with any bonds being executed. And the contemporaneous exchange for new value defense will be effective for this transfer of collateral. This situation would not result in a preferential transfer. However, the surety may execute some prior bonds, but then may require and receive collateral before the surety's execution and provision of new and additional bonds. Then, within 90 days of the surety's receipt of the collateral, the debtor files a bankruptcy case. Whether or not there were actual claims against the prior bonds, those prior bonds are an antecedent debt of the debtor under the definitions of debt and claim. To the extent that the surety wishes to use the collateral to reimburse itself for losses on the bonds executed prior to its receipt of the collateral, the surety may have received a voidable preference. However, to the extent that the surety may have losses on the new bonds issued in reliance upon the receipt of the collateral, the surety should not have a preferential transfer because of the new value provided to the debtor with the issuance of the new and additional bonds. Another option, a surety may make a demand for collateral or demand to be placed in funds due to actual or anticipated claims or losses on bonds executed prior to the debtor's filing of its bankruptcy case. To the extent that the surety receives the transfer of the collateral within 90 days of the filing of the debtor's bankruptcy case, there's really no defense to the avoidance of that preferential transfer. The final one is a question, which is, are the surety's pre-petition financing agreement rights against the principal, including the receipt of collateral, 
an avoidable preferential transfer if the principal files for bankruptcy within 90 days of the financing agreement's execution and implementation. Some performance bonds may provide the surety with the option to finance its principal as the surety's performance under the performance bond. Or the surety may decide to finance its principal anyway in a business decision to mitigate potential loss. Most indemnity agreements provide that the surety may finance the principal with the funding becoming a loss for which the surety is entitled to be reimbursed. And under most financing agreements, the surety attains whatever collateral the principal may have to secure the surety for those potential losses, as well as trust fund rights against the bonded contract funds. Notwithstanding the surety's financial assistance, the principal may file a bankruptcy case less than 90 days after the execution of the financing agreement and the surety has perfected its liens against the collateral. The question is whether the surety's financing provides new value to the principal, now the debtor, and provides a defense to the surety's receipt of the collateral and any other rights. Unfortunately, as Mike read previously, under the definition of new value, the new value definition does not include an obligation substituted for an existing obligation. Therefore, there may be a conflict between the surety's position and the trustee's position. The surety's position is that it has the right, but not the obligation, to finance a principal under the existing indemnity agreement or under the existing bonds, and that the surety's financing has provided new value and a benefit to the principal, including access to and use of the bonded contract funds as trust funds for the principal's performance of the work and payment of its subcontractors and suppliers. The surety may also argue that the effect of its financing will, do, will reduce the surety's eventual unsecured claim to the benefit of other unsecured creditors. The trustee's position is that the performance and payment bonds are existing obligations for the surety and that the surety's financing of the principal through the financing agreement is substituting one method for the performance of the surety's obligations under the bonds for the surety's already existing obligations for the performance of the work under the performance bond and the payment of the principal subcontractors and suppliers under the payment bond. The surety wants to preserve its trust fund control of the collection and use of the bonded contract funds and wants to preserve the collateral it obtained to reduce to secure the risk of financing the principal. Whether a particular bankruptcy court will allow this to happen is unfortunately an open question based on a case-by-case -case assessment of the facts. Mike? Okay, so we're, uh, we're out of time. We're running out of time, so I'm just going to quickly note that some, some potential preferential uh, actions could be the filing of a, of a mortgage or uh, you know, deed of trust on, on property. Uh, that can be construed under the definition of a transfer as a preferential transfer. Also, um, secure, obtaining a security interest under the UCC, under Article 9, filing the, the, the indemnity agreement and a UCC-1 financing statement and perfecting your security interest uh, within the preference period could also be deemed a preference. And, of course, judgments, obtaining judgments and, and liens against property through uh, through court orders and that, and that kind of thing is also uh, preferential treatment as well. And then we're going to talk about next time, you know, the, the, the collateral of, uh, of a letter of credit is typically not considered to be property of the estate. However, some courts have held that it can be an indirect preference where the 
where the debtor provides collateral to the bank, which is property of the estate, and then the bank issues the letter of credit, some courts collapse that whole thing into one transaction and basically look at it as if the creditor gave the collateral to the surety. And therefore, um, uh, some courts have held that even with a letter of credit, it can be an indirect um, preferential transfer. So in closing here, uh, before we open up the lines, just wanted to remind everyone the next uh, surety today will be Monday, December 10th. At 12.30, George and I, as we discussed, will present part two, preference actions. Um, the upcoming events for the surety industry at the Chicago Surety Claims Association's holiday event will be December 6th. The Philadelphia Surety Claims' next launch will be November 14th. And uh, our partner, Cindy Rogers, where will be speaking on the False Claims Act. And then Philadelphia Surety Claims will hold their holiday event on December 5th. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, and we look forward to speaking with you again next month. Let me uh, unmute the lines for Okay, uh, any questions out there, folks? All right. I guess either we did a really good job and they have no questions, or we did a really bad job and they're so confused they don't have any questions. Or we beat them over the head so much that they're tired of hearing from us. That's so. right. That could be. Or, you know, it's uh, Veterans Day. No one's even there. All right. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye.